Eagle Eye in the Sky is fueled by Gatorade, the official sports drink of the Philadelphia Eagles. You are listening to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Now here's your host, Brand Duffy. That's right, another week, and it's not just any week, because it's draft week, as the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade, continues. I'm Fran Duffy, and as always, I think we've got a great show for you here on episode number 173. At the top of this week's show, we've got Chalk Talk, where I chat with former NFL offensive lineman and a guy that I'm happy to say as a friend in Ross Tucker. Ross and I are going to talk a lot about offensive line play, the traits you need to have success in the NFL, his playing days, and just how the game has evolved, along with some thoughts on some of the top linemen going off the board this Thursday night in the NFL draft. So let's not waste any more time. I caught up with Ross Tucker to discuss the offensive line, the evolution of the position, and how it's changed in recent years. Let's get to that chat now in Chalk Talk. Let's get down to business. It's time for Chalk Talk. I'm fired up to welcome back my buddy Ross Tucker back to the show. We all know Ross from all of his great podcasts over at RossTucker.com as well as all the pieces he writes over at The Athletic and all the great content that he puts out on his Twitter page at RossTuckerNFL. Ross, welcome back to the show, man. It's, uh, It's great to have you back here on Chalk Talk. Absolutely, Fran. Thank you for having me. Anytime I can be on with you, anytime I can be on PhiladelphiaEagles.com, I am happy to. You guys still have by far, in my opinion, I'm biased, of course, the best website in the NFL. Well, I appreciate that. And it's obviously, look, it's draft week. And so the, our, uh, our content plan is, is through the roof with what we've got coming for Eagles Draft Central later this week. But take me back to your playing days. And that's why I always find this fascinating. What was the draft like? What was your mindset as an NFL player? Were you anxious? Did you just kind of put your head down and go to work? What was going through your mind every year this time? Uh, I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I pretty much hated it. You know, I think if you're one of the 10 to 15 best players on the team, you don't really have to worry about it. I, it's so funny that you asked me that, Fran. I literally wrote about this this week for my column at The Athletic. I said, everybody loves the draft and the ratings go up every year. The only people I know that don't like it are actual NFL players because I, I, I'm not familiar with another industry where you can literally watch on TV as a team you know, or, or a company or organization you know, hires your your replacement and you know that there's a decent chance you're going to lose your job in a few months. I mean, it, it's really like that. And I, and I always laugh too, Fran at the guys say that say, uh, I never let that bother me. I, I just control the stuff that I can control. Well, guess what, Fran? I never worried about the stuff I could control because I could control it. I knew I was going to put the time in, in the weight room and watching film and in my technique work and nutrition and sleep, I knew I was going to control the stuff I could control. What I was worried about was the stuff I couldn't control. And so it seemed like every year, whether I was watching it or, you know, just following it along on my phone or whatever, you know, you're rooting, to be honest with you, you're rooting for the team to take as few guys at your position as possible. And if they do take them, to take them as late as possible. And it's not like that 
for guys, you know, like Carson Wentz and Fletcher Cox and Lane Johnson. They don't have to worry about that. But, you know, for a good two-thirds of the roster, uh, they do have to worry because it is a numbers game, and especially if the player's drafted fairly high, he's going to bump somebody off the roster. You know, I already see all these, you know, 53-man projections right now. That's not including any of the draft picks. They're going to come on, and some of them are going to make the team, and some guys are going to get bumped off as a result. And most of the time, unfortunately, I was in a position where it had the potential to affect me, whether that was, you know, having to compete with somebody for a starting opportunity or for the swing inside guy or perhaps even for a roster spot. So did that angst like follow you to your very early post playing days or did you, obviously you've gotten over it now to this point, I would think, but did that carry over with you this time of year, every single year? You know what? I, I remember saying to my wife uh, a couple of years afterwards, you know, one year, maybe we went to the Princeton football spring game. Another year, I think we went to the blue white game at Penn state, you know, hanging out. I said, Kara, can you imagine how stressed out I'd be right now if I was still playing. Cause she remembers what that's like. So I, I still had a little bit of anxiety just knowing what it's like for the guys that were still playing. But I guess more than anything else, I felt relief that I could be having a good time, whatever I was doing and, and not have to worry about, you know, the team driving. I could distinctly remember Fran, I had surgery on a back surgery like on a Thursday or Friday in Buffalo in 05 and the draft was that weekend so you know I tried to fight off the surgery I started 13 games the year before in 04 Jason Peters was on the team and uh which by the way it's unbelievable we're talking 2019 and this is back in 2005 (laughs) it's just crazy so but at any rate I, I distinctly remember laying on the couch I just had the back surgery I wasn't allowed to do anything And I watched the Bills take an offensive lineman in the fourth round and again in the sixth round. And the Bills really did not cut very many draft choices. And I just knew that that was going to make my job more difficult. And they were probably, you know, covering themselves in case I didn't come back from the back surgery. But I I just knew, wow, that's that's two interior offensive line roster spots right there. So... uh... You you mentioned you you're in the building you're doing when you're going through workouts you're coming back this is around the time of year now the organized team activities around the NFL have commenced right we're in phase one at this point when and it was different your playing days right and before this most recent CBA where guys were in the building a little bit more often in the off season but what was your mindset when you you come back to the building for the first time and you're working here in the off season was it just to try and get better overall? Did you kind of focus in on one specific thing? What, what was your mindset going into this stage of the offseason? Well, first of all, I loved this part of the offseason, you know, because you go home for a while, and it's just not easy to work out as well at home as when you're with the team in the facility and you're with the other guys that you're competing with and in some cases against. So I loved coming back. Plus, I – I don't know what it is now, but I, you know they used to give you like 100 bucks a day, 150 bucks a day to work out. I thought that was awesome. I mean, all my buddies were paying 50 bucks a month to go to Gold's Gym. I thought it was great. I was getting $150 a day, free <laughs> breakfast, free lunch. I mean, Fran, you know what those meals are like in the yes, Eagles I do. cafeteria. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's probably a big reason why you work for the Eagles. That's exactly right. <laughs> is those, those meals they serve. So I, I loved this time of year. Um, and 
in the weight room, it was, and, and really even on the field, there usually wasn't any one specific thing. You know, for me, it was always everything. It was always hand usage. It was always my footwork. It was always trying to play a little bit lower. Now, there might be days where after practice or after working out, I might have just worked on my hands or I might have just worked on jump sets or whatever it is that I was looking at. Maybe I was just working, just watching film of me from the year before to see how I could improve. But I was always trying to get better. And it's interesting because I don't know anybody that put more time in towards their technique than I did, yet I never really got it where I wanted it to be. I mean, you know, I would say my technique was probably average. And so I I think I could have been a better player if I'd gotten my technique to above average. So part of that is absolutely just the time you put in. But part of that is also some guys just have a more natural knack for it than others. You know, so I, I see these guys with terrible technique. And I know coaches think, oh, I can fix it. I can fix that. It's tough to go from terrible technique to great technique. I think you can, like a lot of these things, increase them incrementally. But I think you're probably kidding yourself if you think you can take a guy uh, that has really poor technique and make him a, a technician. Well, we're going to get into the, the college to the NFL transition here in a sec, but I actually wanted to ask you, because I was thinking about this, um, just in, trying to think about, all right, what are, we, what are Ross and I going to talk about, and you know, talking about OTAs, and, and just how it's evolved. Obviously, look, you, you talk with players, you talk with coaches, you talk with front office personnel all across the NFL, right? And so you, you've seen the effects of the, the new CBA that was signed back in 2011. So now we're, we're eight years deep into this thing now. And so the, some time, a couple generations of NFL players have been removed now at this point. What are the biggest differences that, that you've been able to see and, and how has it, has it been affected in terms of the roster and just the development of players? Because I feel like, honestly, if I look at this big picture, the position that I feel is affected most, I think, and I, th- I think this is true. I'm still kind of working through it in my mind. I think it's offensive line. I think when you talk about you know less time spent in the building, you know offensive line being all about continuity and working with the guys and you know the raw players that come from college that need to be worked on through the NFL. I feel like offensive line is a position that's hurt the most by that. Is that something that you agree with? And then you know what, how is it so different from when you played versus now in terms of the overall offseason? So I I would agree with that that the offseason and training camp are most important for offensive line. I would say actually the second group is probably the secondary. It's fair. Yep. Um, and, and even though, you know, there's not as much contact for those guys and they can still do a lot of the things that they do. I think those are the two groups where you've got the most people performing at one time, five offensive linemen, usually five or even six defensive backs. And those are the positions where communication is really at a premium and you're so often working in concept with other guys. And so like anything else, Fran, you know, the more you and I talk or the more anybody talks, the more familiar we get with each other, the more comfortable we would be, you know, doing these, um, you know, sessions on chalk talk and being able to go back and forth. It's the same way on offensive line in the secondary, you know, Every single rep is valuable because you think about it, you want to be able to practice every situation. But what if, when, you know, you have a couple less OTAs, you have no two-a-days during training camp. 
And so there's only so many reps out there. And you can get a mental rep, but it's not the same as actually getting the physical rep. So what if the one time we happen to call, you know, 18 power or whatever it is, right? What if they were in an under front and then you get to the first preseason game or you get to the next and you go against them and they're in an over front? You know, how many reps have you really gotten against that against live competition because the reps are cut down? Offensive line, I'd say even more so than the secondary. I think that the similarity between offensive line and secondary is the fact that they are both high communication and symbiotic relationships in terms of working with other people. But I don't think there's another position more so than offensive line that's so repetition-based, especially when you're working in concert with the man next to you, which is one reason – why the offensive lines, like the Eagles, that have more continuity, tend to perform better. You look at the best offensive lines around the league, there's really not that much turnover, you know, in places like Pittsburgh, you know, places like New Orleans. It's it's generally the same group of guys for the most part from year to year. And so then I'm thinking about this and I'm, you know, I'm trying to take it next level, right? And I'm like, all right, well, if the, if the offensive line is the group that's most affected, we know that, and you, you're obviously well aware of this, and our, most of our listeners are as well. I think when you're when the offensive line is affected in a negative way, that now affects everything else. You know that now you're talking about all the other positions on offense being affected, and so you know I think about how you know we all talk about the evolution of the game and how it's come along, and how you know college is coming into the NFL. You look at the quarterback position, and you know eight years ago the prototypical quarterback looks different now than what we're seeing. I mean, we saw Baker Mayfield go number one last year. We're probably going to see Kyler Murray go number one overall this Thursday night. These are guys that would not have gotten a sniff at the first round. But I think now when you're looking at, all right, breakdowns along the offensive line means that your quarterback has to be able to make more second reaction plays, right? More plays outside of structure because now the construct of a play is being mitigated immediately because of uh, bust along the offensive lines. So your quarterback has to be able to account for that. Your quarterback has to be able to play with outside of structure. And then off of that, your receivers have to be unco- be able to uncover quicker. So maybe you know the bigger, slower wide receiver doesn't necessarily – he's not the prototype now. Maybe it's a little bit smaller, somebody that can quickly gain separation, open up in scramble drills. You need your defensive backs to be able to mirror those guys that can now separate. And I think it's just – it's so interesting. You talk about the trickle-down effect. Now that we're eight years removed from that, and I know this is something that you follow closely, so it was something I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, I think it's so, so interesting to look at how you know the offensive line play and how that's changed over the last few years really affects all the other positions on the field. Correct, and, and here's the thing. I, I, I call it now like the trickle-up effect, right? Yeah. There used to be so many things that happened at the NFL level that would trickle down to the lower levels. I look at it, Fran, as the trickle-up effect, and I can't name a single position, Fran, where the guy weighing more, slightly more, being a bigger guy, is the trend. I mean, think about um, think about running back. It's much more to, in vogue to have guys that are good in the passing game as opposed to the 230, 240-pound hammer. You look at wide receiver, you know, if you would have told me back in the day that a guy even Antonio Brown's size could be as productive as he was 
And we're seeing that more and more where some of these receivers weigh 175, 180 pounds, and they're, they're playing at a really high level. Hollywood Brown in this draft is a good example of that in, in college football. He weighs a buck 66 or whatever the case may be. Deshaun Jackson, who's back with the birds, is a good example of that. Even tight end, you look on the defensive side of the ball, there's not a single position where you've heard a coach say in the last few years, you know, we're really looking to try to get bigger at that spot. I just haven't heard a guy say that. I mean, yeah. not linebacker. I mean, I, I broadcast uh, college football games, Fran, and the linebackers are like six foot 225. I mean, the, the, you know, that, that guy that plays in high school at 6'1", 235 and runs everybody over at fullback linebacker, there's almost not a position for him. And I think at quarterback, I think guys like Drew Brees – and even to a lesser extent, guys like Chase Daniel have enabled more high school coaches to be willing to play shorter quarterbacks. And that's opened up the pool. And we've had guys emerge that can play at a really high level. You know, I used to joke about it, but even until five years ago, there were a lot of powerhouse high schools in the country that they wouldn't even play a kid at quarterback unless he was six two. Yep. So, you know, I often think, how often, how many times is it there aren't more six foot quarterbacks? Is it because there aren't enough good ones or because not enough of them really get a chance? And if they're six foot and they show a little bit of movement skills, they get moved elsewhere. I mean, we're only six years removed from it, but Russell Wilson just got the big contract last week. And we all know what Russell Wilson has been since he got in the league and obviously has a, has a Lombardi trophy and everything, but if Russell Wilson came out in the 2019 draft and not in 2012, he's not going third round. No, no. I, I mean, it, it's unbelievable now to think about it. You know, Russell Wilson should have been the first pick in that draft. Mm. Now, I know Andrew Luck went in that draft as well, but I think you understand my point. I mean, I, yeah. you know, this is the way it's going to be now. I mean, we're going back-to-back -back years with quarterback sub 6-1 being the number one overall pick in the NFL draft. It's incredible. All right, well, let's talk about the NFL draft. And I had Brandon Brooks on the show last week, and it was a really fun conversation. We talked a lot about Game of Thrones, but the first half of the conversation was all uh, offensive line play. And, you know, I want to ask you a couple of the questions I asked him. Um, what, do, what do you think is the most fixable thing for a guy coming from college to the NFL? This could be mental. It could be physical. Whatever, what trait do you think is most fixable for a guy coming from college to the NFL? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I would say most fixable would probably be footwork. Okay. I think, it, I think if you rep your footwork enough, if you work on your set enough, I think that you can get your set where you want it to be. Whether it's a vertical set, whether it's a 45, whether it's a jump set, I think if you work that enough, that's probably the most fixable. I don't see a lot of guys that the reason why they fail, Fran, is because of their set. I mean, there's some that I don't like their sets, but for the most part, I think you can get your footwork and your set where you want it to be more easily than you can necessarily your your hand usage. 
What is a must? You know, we talk about all the skill sets, the whether it's physical, mental, and it was interesting. Brandon, a lot of the stuff I asked, and a lot of his answers were, it was all personality based, it was mental based, and I thought that that was really intriguing. But what what is a must that you that you have to have if you're a college offensive lineman going to the NFL? So I would say um, FBI. Okay. Which which is for people that haven't heard it before, football intelligence. You know, Fran, I've seen guys study the playbook all day, every day. I mean, these poor guys put in so much time, Fran. And then when they're out there and in the heat of the battle, you know, the end pinches and they're supposed to kick out for the linebacker coming off the edge and they stay with the end and they don't realize they have the backer off the edge until it's too late. And they get cut, even though they were awesome in one-on-ones. If you put them in the book or gave them a written test, they knew it like the back of their hand. But when they were out there, their innate spatial awareness, their their football intelligence, their just feel for the game, they just didn't have it. And and it that is very, very hard to coach. Now, I will say this, okay? That's different than a guy like Jason Peters because Jason really struggled in that area initially, but that was because he had never played the position before more so than lacking in football intelligence. I remember even in the 05 training camp, you know, they were not able to start Jason at tackle in his second year because there were still too many mental errors. It still took him a little while. You know, he was just so new to the position but obviously, he's figured it out and figured it out in a major way. There's other guys that, that just never were able to figure it out, even though they played O-line in college. And if all they had to do was block the D-end, they were good. But you got anybody else involved, any type of pinch, any type of stunt, and they just it just didn't come naturally for him, unfortunately. And I, I, I honestly felt bad for those guys because I, some of those guys, I remember how much time they put in. And they knew it. They knew it. Then they got out there, and they just couldn't do it when when the live bullets were happening, so to speak, and it was happening, you know, in, in a split instinct. Because it's a different kind of intelligence, Fran. It is. I mean, you know, it has nothing to do with your SATs. Nothing to do with yep. what kind of grades you get. We're talking about split second reaction decisions under fire. What was the hardest thing for you personally making the trade? You mentioned earlier, you know, no matter how much work you put in, your your hands are, were never quite where you wanted them to get. But what was the number one hardest thing for you making the transition to the next level? Probably the one-on-one pass protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, dealing with guys that uh, had really long arms. Interesting. It was just really tough how they would be able to affect me before I could affect them, you know, it's nice to be able to have those long arms and put those feelers out. So you're able to, to just get something on them. You know what I mean? Just get a hand on them, a feel on them, and then be able to guide them. You know, with me having short arms, they were on me. They were into me before I could really even get my hands on them, which is why, my my way to combat that is I jumped as often as I could. I jumped guys and tried to get my hands on them before they could react. But the problem is very difficult to do that. Obvious passing downs, 
you know, especially if you're at guard or tackle, there's going to be some space between you and they know what to pass. So if you jump them, they might be able to beat you real quick. One-on-one pass pro was the toughest thing for me. And then mentally, psychologically, when did things, this, this question may not have an answer, but when did things really click for you? You know, I, I was actually pretty comfortable right away, Interesting. Um, okay. which was surprising to me. But, yeah, I, I, it's weird, Fran. I only played uh, garden college. The Redskins moved me to offensive tackle. And I figured out pretty quickly that when the tight end was to my side, that the DN was playing off the tight end. You know, he was a six technique playing off the tight end. So anytime the tight end was to my side, I jumped the DN because he's playing off the tight end for a split second. By the time he realized it was past, I had him. It was over, right? So I just kind of picked up on those things. I will say the difference between going into camp my rookie year and just not knowing if I belonged, hoping to make the team, and going into OTAs my second year, after I had a whole season under my belt, an off-season of working out, getting bigger and stronger, and knowing I belonged, I mean, that second OTAs, my year two, I thought I was the biggest, baddest dude out there. I mean, I really I really thought I could start. I thought I should start. I mean, it just – the difference in confidence was uh, night and day from year one to year two for me. I think it's like that for a lot of guys. All right, well, let's real quickly – I'm going to let you bounce here. I want to ask you about a couple of the guys that are going to hear their names called on Thursday night. And Really, it's, it's kind of a three-man – offensive line class when you're talking about the top half of round one, right? It's Jonah Williams uh, from Alabama who's played left and right tackle. Jawan Taylor, most of his reps have come at right tackle throughout his career for the University of Florida. And then Andre Dillard, the left tackle from Washington State. From what you've seen of these three, how, how would you compare them? How would you compare their skill sets? How would you stack them from uh, how you personally view all three? Well, I'm glad you said it that way because – let me get, let you know in a little hint here, Fran. And I think you probably already know this. A lot of times, former players like the guys that were like them. Mm. Like the guys that had their traits. If you ever notice, guys that play tight end in the NFL, they like teams that throw the ball to the tight end a lot. They try to throw the ball. You know, the, <laughs> the Ken Wisenhunts, the Mike Malarkeys, they like to get the ball to the tight ends. Guys that played... Running back, uh, Maurice Carthon, he liked to get the ball to the running back. You know, they, they always, you know, there, there's always that, that background is always with you. And because of that, the guy I really like is Jonah Williams. That's right. Um, I see him do it on both sides of the ball. Um, you know, he's part of the, and by the way, his arms aren't that short. His arms are longer than Andre Dillard's. That's so right. his arms aren't that short, but you know, the knock on him is the short arms and, so he's kind of we're, we're in the same boat there. But I've seen what he does from a tenacity standpoint. I've read what he does from a preparation standpoint. This guy was a pro football player the last three years, and he treated it like that. He talks about it like that. He said, I, I felt like playing football at Alabama. I was a professional football player. And I love him. I think he can play either tackle, either guard. I think he could probably play center. And he's the guy that I would be shocked if he's not a really good player in the NFL. Shocked. I think uh, next up, Taylor and Dillard are more flavors of ice cream. 
right? If you want the guy that's going to be the smoothest athlete in pass pro and the guy you have to worry about the least in that regard, you're going to go Dillard, but the jury's really out how much you're going to get from him in the run game and whether or not he's even a liability in that area. I mean, it's one thing to not be a people mover. It's another thing to be a liability to the point where, you know, you try to run to that side and the DN is just, you know, cracking your collarbone right there and just stuffing the play. And then Jawan Taylor is a mammoth human being, very physical. I, I guess I want to see more from him, though, in terms of pass protection and see what it's like for him going against some of the elite guys because I just saw some things in the Kentucky tape and others where I thought, okay, I, I wonder, I, I think he'll be fine but I don't feel as confident about him in pass protection as I do Dillard. But if you want a bigger body who's going to be more of a hammer in the run game, then Taylor would be your guy. Well, let's just go really quickly on the, the last tier. You don't have to go through all these guys, but just who's the guy that really stands out to you that, that you feel strongest about? Garrett Bradbury from NC State, the center. Uh, Cody Ford, who was the right tackle this year for Oklahoma. Caleb McGarry, right tackle for Washington. Chris Lindstrom has played both tackle and guard for Boston College. Uh, you've got Titus Howard from Alabama State. Dalton Reisner from Kansas State. A bunch of offensive linemen in that second cluster, that next tier. Who's the guy that really stands out to you? Well, I'm going to give you three, Bradbury, McGarry, and Reisner, and for all the same reason, really, uh, because they get after people. And yep. I just, I like that. I, there's another guy I like I'll tell you about, too, is Michael Dieter from Wisconsin. Sure, no question. I, I like his versatility, but Bradbury reminds me of, like, uh, a Jason Kelsey type, by the way. I mean, like a, a Kevin Mawai, Tom Nalen, just that athletic. Um, I love Dieter's versatility and size for all three spots. And then even some of the other guys you mentioned, McGarry, I've seen some tape on McGarry. I love that guy. I mean, yep. McGarry's got some John Runyon in him. So, you know me, that's what I like. I think it's it's the most fun way to play the position. Reisner's in that category as well. There's a long track record of guys like that having success because – enjoying the physical aspect of the game and really taking pleasure in trying to physically punish other people that that separates guys because pro football is tough. And so the guys that really enjoy it, enjoy that aspect of it, I think separate themselves a lot from the guys that just do it because it's the job and they're supposed to. Well, Ross, this was a lot of fun. Really appreciate you joining us here on Chalk Talk on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast fueled by Gatorade. I'm sure we'll be talking to you here in the next uh, the coming weeks for sure. Absolutely. Anytime, Fran. You know that. Great stuff from Ross, and you could follow him just like I do on Twitter, at Ross Tucker NFL. And while you're at it, I'm at FDuffy3. That's where I post all of the podcasts I'm a part of and all of our X's and O's content that we produce at PhiladelphiaEagles.com. And you know I greatly appreciate everybody that promotes this podcast on any form of social media. But the best way to support the show and the number one way to do it is to go on to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, give us a rating, and even leave us a comment. And I want to give a shout-out to Lano Johnson, who went onto our Apple Podcast page and left a five-star review. With Jordan Hicks gone, do we, af- do we draft a linebacker in the draft? As it stands, who takes his place? So 
And I've got no idea if they're going to draft one. I think when you look in this class, there are certainly some players in the very top of the draft. Uh, I always think you you have the two Devons, right? There's Devin White from LSU, Devin Bush from Michigan. Both those guys likely to be long gone by the time the Eagles select. So after that, we'll see. It'll it'll come down to fit and value. And if the Eagles really, really like somebody when they're up on the clock, I don't think they'll be afraid to pull the trigger. Obviously, the team added LJ Fort, a young veteran from Pittsburgh, uh, a guy that will come in and continue to compete with some of the young veterans that are already here in Kamu Grugier-Hill, Nate Gary, the team drafted a couple of years ago. So a lot of young players that they have to compete there in that spot next to Nigel Bradham. And remember, when Jordan Hicks was out of the lineup, the Eagles played a lot of dime. And so they've got that ability to play with just one linebacker on the field, which would be Nigel Bradham. Obviously, nickel, the primary sub package. And we'll, just, we'll see. We'll find out here who will be that nickel linebacker alongside Nigel Bradham. I'm sure the next few months we'll kind of sort all of that out. But uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how they decide to address it, if they decide to address it at all. And I think that's one of the beauties of how the Eagles front office approached this offseason, right? And that's really how you want to go into a draft. We talked with Lance Zerline last week on the Journey to the Draft podcast where you know he talked about the Houston Texans and they're going into this draft picking in the low 20s with dire needs at corner and at offensive line. And two of the most important positions in the game, they have to address bodies. They've got to get players that can come in and make an impact. And the Eagles don't have one of those scenarios where they must go in and sign or draft somebody to be able to come in and play a certain role for this team in 2019. That's what makes Howie Roseman and this entire staff, Joe Douglas, Andy Weidel, right down the line, the entire group, they've done a great job with this entire offseason and what they've done over the last couple of years. So thanks to Liano and all of you out there for your continued support of this show and all the rest of our podcast offerings on PhiladelphiaEagles.com. All right, great stuff this week from Ross Tucker and all of you out there listening, whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Tune in, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on PhiladelphiaEagles.com and the Eagles mobile app. Thank you. And again, one more time, take a few seconds, go rate the show, leave us a comment. Don't be afraid to leave a question on there as well because I would love the ability to answer it here on the show. All that being said, I think that'll do it. Another show in the books here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast fueled by Gatorade. For everybody here at the Novocare Complex, I am Fran Duffy. We will talk to you next week.